Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Through our series, Divided, Seeking Unity in a Fractured World, we are coming face to face with the division that seems to define the culture of our nation, our communities, and even our churches. Join us as we turn to 1 Corinthians to discover the unifying power of a people who follow Christ. Our reading this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today we are beginning a sermon series entitled Divided, which is looking at First and Second, First Corinthians chapters 1 and 2. And as is our way, our church is interested in finding out what it means to walk as Christians in our world. And this sermon series is specifically looking at in a world filled with factions and troubles and parties and everyone's angry at everyone all the time, how do we walk as Christians? My name is Nathan Didlick. I am the worship and discipleship pastor. Our campus pastor, Jeremy, is uh, still on sabbatical. So if you're new, this is a different flavor and hopefully a good flavor uh, than the normal flavor that we have here on a Sunday morning. But our churches, uh, we always pursue opening up God's word and applying it to our lives. So if you'll open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, uh, just three verses, but we have a lot to learn from them. And today's message is entitled, Come Together. Now our sermon begins this morning by stopping and paying heed to the 2019 cinematic classic, The Lego Movie 2, the second part. In this classic tale of heroism meets woe, we meet Emmett, who finds himself thrust into an apocalyptic journey from his enchanted bungalow in Apocalypseburg to go upstairs through the portal door to save his friends and girlfriend Lucy, who are kidnapped by the people of the Sistar system by General Sweet Mayhem. In his quest through this stairgate, Emmett encounters the ultra-cool, very fashionable, and always likable Rex Dangerfield, who teaches Emmett how to be awesome and hip and cool and not care about others, which is very much against Emmett's better nature. But he does not know, spoilers, that this is Rex from the future, and that Rex is actually him who's donned a new title, and Rex is mad about not having had friends or being accepted for who he is. In the meantime, Lucy and her friends, including Batman, have met the queen of the Sistar system, queen whatever I want to be. And the queen seeks to unify the Sistar system and Apocalypseburg from impending doom, the impending doom of Armageddon. None of you apparently have seen the movie. It's a great movie. Oh my goodness, if you are an adult, you should see this movie. It's so funny. Now it's Dangerfield. I looked it up. Danger Vest? Way to go, kids. Family Sunday is off to a great start. Danger vest. I mean, that's close enough. Apparently, I misread it on IMDb this morning. So, But in this amazing tale, 
you have the standard story of what will happen if two systems of different, different people groups cannot join together. Will they face the apocalyptic doom of our Armageddon, or will they come to a new place and enjoy sweet togetherness and love? This is basically the story of what's happening in the Corinthian church. Hard part, hard turn. The Corinthian church was a beloved church that was filled with problems. Corinth was a prominent Roman city on a major trade route that existed in a very important time in the growth of the Roman world. And this church built in this city was facing all the same problems that any church uh, faces. How do you live as a Christian in a world that has so many things that ought to offer you that are against the Lord? So in this book, and actually both letters, they deal with things like, what leaders do you follow? Is it okay to have cliques inside of a church? How do you handle litigation, sexual immorality, marriage, remarriage? How do we read the Old Testament appropriately? You have a gift, I have a gift, we all have spiritual gifts. What do you do with those things? These are all the questions that are being asked in 1 and 2 Corinthians. And in this sprawling letter, Paul tackles all of these questions, rooting his answers first and foremost in the gospel. He considers, if Jesus did this on our behalf, then how should we live? It's never disconnected from our identity as Christians. If Jesus did this, then how should we approach the situation right in front of us? How does the gospel give light to my next steps and impact my choices? What does it mean to ask questions in light of the gospel? Well, I don't want to assume anything, so let's begin by asking what the gospel is. Paul tackles his questions and always roots his answers in what the gospel is. So what is the gospel? The gospel is more than the story of how you go to heaven. Way more than that. The gospel is the story of a God who loves and who is at work in our world to bring salvation, wholeness, purity, and goodness to a world and its inhabitants crippled by the presence and power of evil. The gospel is the story of a God who loves bringing full redemption, full redemption, taking that which is broken and making it whole and finally good. It's more than going to go to heaven when you die, which is very often how it's told, hey, you want to go to heaven? Jeepers, Jesus is up there. No, it's God on the move, in real time, changing the story, reconstructing us so that we mysteriously but dramatically become different people when we accept Jesus by faith. We become changed people. We become God's people. The gospel is also the story of God at work in history, bringing all things to his perfect ends. It's great, it's mysterious, but it's awesome. And that same gospel explores all the wonders of God and his work in the world. And when we look at the gospel and we come across the questions and problems that our life faces, we have to ask ourselves, how do I answer this? Not as who I was before I met Christ, but as who I am today, as a Christian. When I approach a question now, I shouldn't approach this as Nathan pre-Jesus. It's Okay, I got a problem in front of me. This person is behaving in a way that drives me crazy. So how do I approach it as Nathan, child of God? And the same is true with you. How do you approach things as a child of the king? 
someone made now, reconstructed, and adopted into the family of God. We no longer follow ourselves as Christians. We follow Jesus. We listen to his prompts. Our decisions are beholden to Jesus. And naturally, this means we must unlearn some stupid habits that we've learned along the way. This means that we are entering a learning curve of applying things that are new and fresh and challenging to our lives. Some things come quickly. You've heard those stories, I'm sure. I came to Christ and smoking was never an issue anymore. Okay. But some things are hard to learn. Like, how do I lay down my pride? How do I stop worrying about what other people think about me? How do I love my neighbor, which is the ethic of the New Testament? Those things take time, but it's okay because we are all a part of a process that God is working us through to teach us how to live like Christians in a world. And this First and Second Corinthians are a masterclass of what it looks like to take a simple question and maybe a complex question and know, how do I answer this as a child of God? So let's look at our text for today. First Corinthians chapter one, verses one through three. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know how much you've read first century Greco-Roman letters. Anybody? No? Pretty exciting stuff. But his entry, his hello here, is pretty formulaic for a normal standard Roman, Greco-Roman letter, except verse 2. And this is where Paul gets excited and starts preaching. Verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So we're going to look at two essential statements here, two statements. One, we are called into holiness. We are a holy people. The second, we are called into a unity. We are a holy people. So try to make it easy this year. Tweetable, in fact. We are called to be holy people, and we are called to be holy people. So the first one we're looking at is we are called into holiness. We are a holy people. Verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. What do you think Paul means by the word saint there? If you come from a Catholic background, the word saint has a very different meaning. It designates a particularly holy person, a servant of God of a particular class, someone who was of such holy measure in this world that they are sainted posthumously, and they become someone that you pray to who... That's not what he has in mind here at all. Paul is applying the word saint not just to one individual and not to someone who's dead. He's applying it to everyone in that church, even the people who are the problem causers, even the people who are trying to fix the problems. He applies the saint, the word saint, to every Corinthian Christian from the start and not just to one individual. He knows also that it's them and every other person from every other church. Verse two, called to be saints together 
with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both theirs and ours. So Paul writes to the Corinthians, but the Ephesian Christians are saints too. They're not less saintly than the Corinthians or more. They're saints together. God, every one of God's people is a saint. Let me say it again. Everyone of God's people is a saint now. I grew up in church. You might have grown up in church. It's very easy for people to be like, well, you know, we're all just a bunch of like beautiful messes. <laughs> or, oh, you know, like it's, God is so like, he's good, but like, you know, I'm just so sinful. Yeah, but you're a saint. Your identity has fundamentally changed. When you look at yourself in the mirror, you now have the invitation to see yourself the same way God sees you. Because when God sees you, he does not look at you through the lens of sin. He looks at you through the lens of his love, which declares you his child, his beautiful, beloved child. You cannot be before him anything other than a saint now. So let's be done with this Christianese that makes us understand that we're so sinful. Who cares? You are sinful, but you're a saint now. We're going to deal with that in a later. It's, it's confusing, but it's awesome. Paul is applying what was formerly, though, applied only to the Jewish people, to Christians, and it would probably cause quite a stir doing so. So when, if you've read the Old Testament, God calls a people to himself, the Jewish people, and he sets them apart for his perfect work. The Jewish people were God's chosen people, but they weren't just God's chosen people to be that by itself. They were supposed to be a city on a hill, a city, a light to the nations to bring God's glory and presence to the ends of the earth. They didn't very well, but that's still what their identity was. Exodus 19.6 says this, you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Actually, I think they have the whole passage there. Yes, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nations. These are the words that you shall speak to Israel. They were to be a holy nation that represented God's presence, actual presence in a world that didn't know this God. And through Israel, God's light was supposed to shine so bright that the nations flocked and became part of God's family. Deuteronomy 7, 6 says this, You are a chosen, you are a people, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. When God calls them holy, he's saying that he's setting them apart for his perfect purposes. They were set apart for him. They were holy. That's actually what the word holy means. It's set apart. For example, have any of you ever gone to grandma's house and seen grandma's china? You know, the very special plates that only come out during special days like Christmas or Easter, and maybe not even then because it's not special enough. Those are plates set apart for a very specific pur purpose. Maybe the day the president shows up or the mayor or maybe um, some famous actors in town. Those are the things that come out. They're so important. And yet, even on the most important days, 
that might not be important enough for these holy treasured possessions. And so when you finally hold one, you realize that something special is happening. That's what it means to be holy, that you are literally so set apart that your purpose in this world is set by grandma, or in this case, God. What is it? But why is being set apart a part of holiness? It's because God is holy. Why set something apart and call it holy? Because God is holy. Leviticus 11, 44 through 45 says this, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming things that crawls on the ground. I am the Lord who brought you up to the land of Egypt to be your God. You, therefore, shall be holy, for I am holy. To be set apart by God is to take part in his nature and character. Oh, that's huge. God could just as easily could have just given them some rules and set them apart and said, now do this. And by the way, I'm going to hold you accountable for it. But instead, he gives them shared nature like himself. He invites them to share in who he is, wholly set apart for him. When God said something apart from himself, he brings it into his nature to reflect him. That's absolutely amazing. So when Paul uses the word saint here, let's be very clear what he's doing. He's applying what was only for Israel to a bunch of messy Christians in Corinth. They are now set apart. They are now holy before God. Christians are God's people. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10 says this, you are a chosen race. This is talking to Christians, no longer just to Israel specifically, but to the entire church. You are a chosen race, a, holy, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see what he's done here? He has applied what was only for Israel to this messy congregation in a growing town called Corinth. And he's telling them from the start, know who you are. You are not just a bunch of vagabonds who have a shared doctrine. You have been set apart by God. Sainthood is more than that. It's more than just being set apart, though. You now become God's presence in the world. You become his temple. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17 says this. Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Okay. Let's take a step back. Is he talking to a building here? Is Paul outside pointing to a building and saying, you are God's temple? Is he? No, he's talking to you. He's talking to the Corinthian Christians. He's telling them something catastrophic. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy. And you are that temple. Literally, Christian, God lives in you. And every other person who's called in the name of Jesus. I, I get so mad when people are like, oh, we're going to do worship in the sanctuary. 
talking about like a room like this. No, you're the sanctuary. Oh, I can't cuss in a church. You're the church. It's astonishing to me how much we still hold on to this lie that a place is sacred. You are the sacred place because God went from moving, living inside the Old Testament temple and you have become the temple of the living God. Followers of Jesus are the temple of God in real time and space. Everywhere you walk, God's presence is walking in that space. That's incredible. That means every place you go, you are literally pushing the kingdom of God forward. Astonishing, isn't it? Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 says this, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles, the prophets, Jesus Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. In him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The very language of this means that the building of the temple is incomplete. There are still people to be saved, but that doesn't change who you are. You are a saint, called, holy, set apart for his purposes. You are the temple of the living God. So when Paul is dealing with the issues at hand, he doesn't say, stop, stop, because I'm important. Stop, because I told you so. He tells them who they are. So for example, they're dealing with immorality in the church. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 says, do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. If we taught young people a morality that's based on that, as opposed to just stop because, oh, what will the pastor think? That actually might cause life change because we have shown them a renovated sense of self. Unfortunately, if, if you grew up in the church like Ed, you grew up in purity culture, which took shame-based laws and completely devoid of this unbelievable understanding of who God is and taught people that it's do's and don'ts. How about we lead from the positive, that God has made you his temple. Literally, the spirit of God dwells in you. And so what you do with your body matters. Instead, you hear this applied to, oh, I eat kale because my body's a temple. No, it has nothing to do with kale. It has nothing to do with eating salads. It has everything to do with the fact that you have become sacred space. Agreed. There are so many things we could say about this. There are entire books written about it and sermon series done, but please hear me clearly. You are a saint, chosen by God, set apart wholly to him. You are the temple of the living God in whom God actively dwells. This building can burn and one day it'll be knocked down, but you will exist forever as his temple. But you'll notice in 1 Corinthians 2, the word sanctification. To the church in Corinth, to those sanctified in Jesus Christ. What does this word mean? No one in here can say I've arrived. Everyone in here still sins. So what is this? We were made holy, are we not holy? Herein lies a mystery and the glory of what it means to walk in faith. You have been declared holy. You have been set apart for God. You have been made his temple for his purpose. But he is actively still making you that too and teaching you how to live like that. That's called sanctification. And every single Christian exists within this mixture of strange realities. 
the already and the not yet. We are already made something. We're not, not yet there. God probably sits back and laughs at how our little minds can't comprehend two things at once. He probably delights in walking us through it too. You and I both know what it's like to wake up and you, you hope to God that the first thing you think of is a righteous thought and then comes the actual thought, which is less righteous. And the God of the universe knows how to carry you in that. Friends, do not be concerned as if because you've struggled with sin still that you have ceased to be what you are. You are a saint. You are chosen by God. You are set apart for his purposes and you are actively on the way to learning how to do that. One of the things that's important for parents, since we've got kids here, parent, kids, have you ever seen your parents make a mistake? Give me a, a hand, raised hand if you've seen your parents make a mistake. Every kid here has seen their parents make a mistake? Oh, I made a mistake on Rex Danger Vest or whatever his name is. <laughs> Every kid has seen that their parents. Do you know why, kids, your parents make mistakes? It's because they're learning how to be holy like God. And it's hard work sometimes because we're not perfect people. You already know this. But so are you. And as you guys face problems, sometimes we might not respond the way we should but we can learn how to live out what God has given us. And God loves us through the problems that we face, just as you are loved through the problems that you face. You do not have to worry about finding imperfections in you because kids, God loves you. And if you've trusted him, he calls you a saint, which means you're holy, even if you sometimes make mistakes. It's a mystery, I know, it's, it makes your mind go Poof, but it's okay. Let's move on. You are holy. Now, there's a second part to this. 1 Corinthians 1, 2. We're called a holy people. Now let's consider the second part. That we were called a holy people. Now we're called into a unity. A holy people together. This is unbelievably important to us. 1 Corinthians 1, 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both theirs and ours. You ever heard that hilarious phrase? But true. Can't choose your family. <laughs> Welcome to church. <laughs> well, I guess, I guess you could because we like to turn church into sort of this uh, which one of us fits our felt needs. But it's still basically true. You enter into a family when you become a Christian. You may not have known this or wanted this, but it, but it is true. And Christians have a very hard time recognizing that. They also have a hard time recognizing that they're a part of a long family. And here's where I need to call out some Christian nonsense, okay? Christians have no, Protestants especially, have no understanding of Christian history. They see Jesus, that's good, and then they skip thousands of years and they suddenly show up with Martin Luther. Oh, he was a guy who wrote a thing and nailed it on a wall that we've never read. And then you, all of a sudden, there's a mystery, a big blank space. And suddenly it shows up with Billy Graham, Billy Sunday, C.S. Lewis, if you like to smoke pipes. And, and you know, this, this, this complete lack of realization that you, we, we forget that we are literally a part of a sweeping redemption that is global. That, that the church 
is everywhere and has existed for a very long time. That God is reaching people in every place and time and history. And you have just as much relational credibility with, with a Christian in Iraq as you do here. And a Christian in the first century as you do here. Because God has brought us into a Christian family. A few years back, my, I was facing some questions that just rocked my faith. And for all some purpose, I ended up picking up a Christian history book, which I thought was going to make me more mad. Because Christians don't have a perfect record in the world. And it blew my mind that the inverse was true. My faith was more stabilized because I realized I was a part of something so much bigger. So much bigger. It's like when we elevate our church service as being like the big one in town, when we forget that across the world, right now, Christians are raising their voices to praise Jesus. And you are a part of their family. This is the unity that Paul speaks about in a different letter, the letter to the Ephesians. He says, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to what? Maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope, that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Did he say two? Did he say three? Did he say just you and everyone else hopes to be like you? No. We were called into a unity. And this is the unity that will be celebrated at the end of days. In Revelations 5, we, we read this. And they sang a new song, and they said, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And if you go forward a few chapters, you finally see the beautiful scene where people from every tribe and nation and tongue throughout all of history are standing before the Lamb of God and giving him praise. That's the scene John saw. It's not just us. It's not just the Woodside campuses. It's everyone from space and time who, who trusted the Lord. Please understand this, and this is important. It is God who has unified us together. He has already done it. Our job is to protect, celebrate, and foster that unity. God has already accomplished this. You and I don't have to make it. When the Holy Spirit entered into us, he unified us so that I share more relational closeness to you than I do my own DNA. This is a unity we have to foster and to celebrate. And one of the things about the book of Corinthians that is interesting, if, if you read the book, I said at the beginning of this message, he ties all of his questions to the gospel. He tries to answer them all through the gospel. But he does another thing too. And this one requires pausing, maturity, and a little bit of work. He drives all of his answers towards Christian unity. He answers them the gospel, but they are always driven towards Christian unity. You see, we have this idea as Christians that the more you know the higher up the scale you go. That's not it. 
This is not a congregation filled with just rights and wrongs. And anyone who in the name of right and wrong destroys this unity has actually destroyed what God is actively building. This fellowship that we have is more than just theological accuracy, though we should pursue that. It's a unity that God is building together. And when we ask the questions that we're asking and seek to understand them as Christians, if we come across an answer that drives us away from our fellow Christian, then we have answered it wrong. We have answered it wrong. I hate it. Been in ministry a long time. And some of the jadedness is inside my soul. I can't stand it when someone trumps, walks into the, the room and starts trumping with all sorts of Bible cards of why you're theologically blah, 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 blah. And they might be kind of right in some respects. But anytime theology, which is meant to unify us, is built to destroy us, you are actively destroying the thing that God loves. And when churches split over things that are meant to bring us together, it must break the heart of God. Because it certainly doesn't reflect the fact that we together are his temple. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17 says this. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. And the you in that sentence is y'all. All y'all are God's temple and all y'all need to keep it together because all y'all are in a fellowship and in a unity. What happens when the rocks of the temple start punching other rocks? The building falls and dumb was its falling. We have been brought into a unity, into a family of people unified by God together. We are more than just right and wrong answers and theological acumen. We are a temple people set apart wholly for God for whom Jesus died and our identity is to be fostered and loved. I love gardening. Rachel started this years ago and at first I was like, I don't have time for that. But what do you do when you actually care for the garden that you're gardening? You foster it, you water it, you go and you pay attention to these little details and you snip off things that would have sucked the energy dry. You, you keep the pests out we used to have these two awesome cats that would drive all the bunnies away. And when one of them died, the other one got lazy. Ugh. So the bunnies got in. And suddenly we had to like think, how do we protect ourselves from bunnies? These magical creatures that look cute but eat our stuff. You protect, you love it, you nurture it, you help it grow. Because it is set apart for you, for your good, and for the edification of your family. And that's how we're supposed to treat our church. I hope no one in here has come to this church with an ax to grind. If you have, you have met a worthy opponent. Because I believe that God has called us together to a genuine unity. And I will fight for this church. I will fight because we are more than just making sure that we're all a bunch of theological eggheads. We are a family to be fostered by love. Anyone can read a book and learn information. To walk in love, that takes maturity. We are a holy people. So here we come to 1 Corinthians 1-2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in 
Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both theirs and ours. You are a holy people, a holy people set apart for God into a family loved and unified by God. Look around, seriously, look around. Look, turn one's head. These people are your Christian family. They have been made holy as well by the presence and power of God. The cleansing blood of Jesus shed on the cross is theirs. You are unified with them. They are holy and are being made holy, just as you are holy and are being made holy. You have been joined to them. They have been joined to you. And if you come across another Christian in the street, hey, I'm a Christian too. You've been joined to that person too. We are unified by God, family. And the appeal throughout the rest of this book is, how do we live as a unified family as Christians? This week, you are going to come across Christians who are going to use theology to break the family of God, whether it's politically backed theology or something else. You're going to come across this. Christians seeking to further divide the church against the family that God loves. So, friends, we are not unlike the Corinthians. We have a set of problems before us, and we must learn to address those problems as Christians, holy and set apart by God, unified with a people, a family, an eternal family. Will you treat and treasure, will you treat with love the people for whom God died? Will you treasure them the same way he treasures them? When one of us stumbles, will you reach down and fostering love pick them up? Or will we act like we did before we were saved? The question is ours. My prayer for you this week is knowing that you are a holy people or at least being reminded of it for some, that you would look at the questions you encounter and ask, how do I live right now as God's child, a holy person unified to his family? How do I need to change in order to live like God right now? It takes change, it takes power, it takes grace, but you are unified with one another and you have a God who is actively sanctifying you for his perfect purposes. Don't be afraid, but this week, Ask yourself the same question that the Corinthians are asking. How do we live as holy, unified Christians in this world? And then watch as the Lord, by his Spirit's power, brings his answer and grace to you to answer the questions that are right in front of you. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org forward slash connect to introduce yourself to us today.